Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the magazine that sponsors this show. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, it's a special edition on evangelism. You can have it absolutely free. There are fantastic feature articles, columns, reviews, news and so much more to enjoy. PremierChristianity.com forward slash free sample is the web link you need to go to if you want to request a free copy of the latest issue of the magazine. That's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. On today's show, Claire Musters has sat down with Katia Adams. Katia is the author of a new book called Equal. And as you're about to hear, Katia has a fascinating story of growing up in Iran and later going on to write on this issue of men and women in the church. It's a really in-depth discussion and I know you're going to enjoy it. So without any further ado, let's listen in. It's great to welcome Katia Adams to the profile today. Katia is co-director of the charity Frequency, which seeks to empower men and women to really reach their potential in Christ and to bring the kingdom of God into their spheres of influence. So Katia and her husband Julian mentor, consult and resource events, as well as speaking regularly around the world. Now, Katia, you are here today because you have written a book called Equal, mm-hmm. what That's right. the Bible says about women, men and authority, which is a very brave subject to tackle. <laughs> and we will get onto that a little bit later. But I wanted to start by really hearing a little bit more about your own journey to understand where you've got to the place of writing that book. And actually, you have got a really fascinating background. So I believe you spent the first five years of your life in Iran. Do you remember much about that? And looking back, it was a very different. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure, of course. Um, yes, I was born in Iran. I was born in Tehran, the capital city. Um, and for the five years that we were living there, um, uh, it was wartime between Iran and Iraq. So I do remember things. And some of the things are lovely, wonderful family memories. And some of the memories are more wrapped up in wartime, in bombs falling. Um, I remember us having to tape windows to make sure the glass wouldn't shatter as the bombs were falling in the city. Um, But really the most vivid memories that I have of that time are prayer meetings that we would have in our um, little apartment um, as the war was going on, as bombs were falling. My dad was amazing and he would drive around the city and find people who needed uh, shelter, find friends whose maybe husbands were off in the war and he would bring them into our apartment and you know as a small child I remember thinking uh, firstly like it was having a ginormous sleepover and people would be coming into the house but also obviously mixed in with this sense of fear and recognizing something horrible was happening around us um, but one of the memories that I have is this moment where we were praying and it was um, nighttime and it, I was really frightened and I remember my dad saying Jesus is with us and he'll protect us and in the morning of course the bombs had stopped falling and we were still there and I just remember that was one of the first moments where a sense of God with us became really tangible for me I must have been mm three, four at the time, but just such a sense of certainty that 
God is with me and he he sees us. He knows where we are and he's watching over us. Um, and really my journey with God, with Jesus began right from then of um, having this deep certainty um, and something that it was childlike, but it was firm in conviction that God is with me and he knows me and he, he loves me enough to care. Um, and that, yeah, that was my start of my journey with God. Wow, what an incredible <laughs> thing to to experience right in the midst of quite a terrifying situation. Absolutely. So your parents and also your grandparents were um, involved in starting and leading churches. Um, so you've grown up with that kind of thing. Is is that what they were doing there at the time? That's right. So the modern day church in Iran really started in my grandfather's house. Mm. Um, my grandparents became Christians through an American missionary, actually. Um, and that kick-started this um, incredible encounter that my grandfather had with the person of the Holy Spirit, um, which started this revival that went on for about three years in their home. They had nightly meetings, hundreds of people got in, got saved. It was just mm. this beautiful birthing of a, of a church in a, in a nation that wouldn't really be well known for Christianity at mm. that time. Um, and that's how the modern day church got planted. And so by the time I came uh, into being, my parents were part of church leadership there. They were on the kind of team helping um, with church leadership. And so I, I grew up in that atmosphere of um, seeing a nation be won over, seeing God do something that was unthinkable before in terms of starting, um, impacting and encountering people in the Middle East, in Iran of all places. Um, and so I kind of grew up in that environment where God was doing the impossible, where uh, faith was very radical, people were getting saved. Um, the Islamic revolution had taken place by the time I was born. So uh, Christians who were in the church were radical in their belief because because um, there's a, a strict penalty for being a Christian in Iran. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in that environment where anything was possible, where God was worth everything. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Such a rich heritage that I, I didn't plan for or ask for, but God was kind enough to give me in that. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so you then moved to the UK. Was that because your parents were planting churches here or how did that happen? Yeah, it was really interesting. God started speaking to my parents after the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, once everything had settled down and it was probably seemingly a good time to stay in Iran if you'd managed to stay there up until that point. But in the late 80s, God started speaking to my parents about all of the Iranian refugees all over the world who were forming very um, kind of isolated communities uh, where missionaries weren't getting in because they were kind of of, um, they needed Iranian speakers really to get to them and God started speaking to my parents and said move to the move to Europe and start planting churches amongst Iranian refugees and start impacting the church in Iran through an underground network and um, at that time really it was unthinkable because my parents loved being in Iran they loved that nation and for them it was a real struggle actually when God said to them to leave I mean now lots of people would think wow of course they would jump at the chance but actually for my parents it was really hard they saw themselves staying in Iran, in Iran for their whole life and serving that nation from within mm -hmm. um, and they couldn't really understand why God would bring them out but of course now um, I mean I 
spoke to my parents a couple of months ago about this, the fruit of their ministry. And my parents' ministry has seen about 300,000 Muslims saved um, in the last 30 years. It's just beautiful what God has done. But at that time, of course, they didn't know what God had up his sleeve for it. They were just taking steps of obedience. And even though they really emotionally wanted to stay in Iran. They they knew that it was a faith journey that God was inviting them into. And so we moved to the UK when I was five. Um, and so the UK feels like home to me, really. It was where I grew up and uh, yeah, I'm British, really. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably you continue to grow up in churches that yes. your parents were leading. Um, did you notice a difference between um, the way that people were in their faith? I mean, you've, you've talked about how Iranian Christians were really radical. Can you s- make a, a comment on what the British church is like in comparison and when you're not up against like, life or death situations, whether that does impact your faith? Sure. Um, so when we moved, amazingly, actually, my uncle was leading a church in the in London. So we happily joined his church which was wonderful and then when I was in my early teens my parents started thinking for me and my sisters and one of four girls that it would be really helpful for us to belong to more of an English-speaking church my uncle led in the Iranian-speaking church Mm -hmm. in London um, so that we could invite our friends from school so that we could stretch our own evangelistic muscles rather than rely on the wonderful stories from my parents ministry and my uncle's ministries And so uh, we actually moved to a church that was local to where we were living in Surrey, a wonderful New Frontiers church, actually. Um, And that's kind of where most of my formative teen years were spent in that church. And and definitely there is a difference between... um, churches that are in the persecuted world and churches who have a fair amount of privilege outside of that. Um, you know, persecution, it, it forces you to be radical. You, you don't join because it's a nice club or a lovely community or you find friends because you're not willing to die for any of those things. And so it forces this sense of radical belief in God, a radical love for him, a radical commitment despite anything that might come um, and of course there's there's a real beauty in that there's a real purity of faith when that's the reality um, I think there's definitely a difference for us in the relative comfort of the western church where we're uh, enjoying being safe and being free in many ways. I know there's other forms of persecution that are a reality and I don't want to belittle those, uh, but physical safety for the most part. Um, And that can create a level of ease and laxity in how we do faith, how we approach faith, because it can become a little bit of a social club because there's not a huge cost to joining it. Um, And so definitely I think when there's the absence of outside pressure that would ignite radical faith, we've got to be the ones who are happy to stir radical faith internally. Um, And I certainly found that in many ways in the local church that we grew up with, men and women who loved Jesus with everything that they had and were seeking to radically apply the truths of the gospel in serving the poor in loving their neighbors. So 
Whilst there is some difference, I think you can be just as radical in relative safety as long as you understand that you're the one who can stir up commitment and radical faith from within. You don't need persecution, thankfully, for that. <laughs> mm. Mm. So you then presumably went to university because yes. uh, I believe you became, you trained to be a doctor. That's right. And you did practice as a doctor for a That's few right. years. Uh, so what happened to cause you to to stop doing that um, and what happened next in your life? Yeah, good question. Um, so right from childhood, I, I felt a sense of call to vocational ministry. Uh, I felt God speaking to me about churches and about um, helping lead churches, helping plant churches and also preaching and teaching from the word. Um, but when I came to kind of deciding whether to go to university, what track to take into ministry, I, I felt a caution in my heart. And I know we all have different routes into ministry. But for myself, I felt God cautioning me that jumping straight into vocational ministry or church work somewhere wasn't the route he wanted me to take. Uh, and felt like a draw towards studying something that would earn me credibility on a secular stage. I felt God inviting me to take a stretch in terms of character, in terms of study, that would look very different to what was my comfort zone at the time, you know, coming from a ministry family. I mean, I remember being kind of a child, seven or eight, and sitting around the dinner table talking about the high priest in Hebrews. I mean, my upbringing was quite unusual, I think, <laughs> in comparison to lots of my friends. And so when I was thinking about study and how to go into ministry, I felt God saying to me that it won't stretch you if you jump straight into ministry. You need something that will earn you credibility and give you an understanding of what most people are walking through Monday to Friday. Mm. And so medicine seemed like a good fit. I, I knew it would stretch me. I knew that having a doctor in front of my name would earn trust in a way that uh, specifically in a secular world will be difficult to earn just simply by saying I'm a Christian. Um, and as I was working in medicine, I, I was always kind of leaning into God you tell me when it's time to step out. You make it clear when this season is coming to an end. Um, and it was about two years in after doing full-time medicine where he started speaking to me about positioning myself in church planting. So I went down to part-time medicine and helped um, in a wonderful church plant in East London uh, for the few years after that. And then about four years into that, God started saying, okay, time to give up on medicine entirely. Now it's time to just kind of throw yourself into what I made you for. Um, and I was ready by that point. I could feel that the kind of grace for being a doctor and working in the medical field, though it had been such a blessing, was also not my natural fit. And I was ready to kind of throw myself into what I knew God had actually made me for and designed me for specifically. So yeah, a little bit of an unusual journey and stepping stone into ministry, but I'm so grateful for it. I um, even now, still talking to people, non-Christians mainly, when I talk to them about God, I can see often that there's a kind of reservation and they look at me you know relatively young looking woman they don't really take me that seriously until I say oh actually I 
I'm a medical doctor and suddenly people's hearts are open in a way that they weren't before. And so I can really see the wisdom of God and how he led me. It's it's a wonderful thing. It's a gift to be a doctor and I'm very grateful for it. Mm. So at what point in your journey did you meet your husband to be and obviously then got married to Julian? Um, that was when I was working for the church plant in London and we met, um, the church plant was a New Frontiers church, it's called Emmanuel, it's a wonderful church in Greenwich and um, I, as part of my job there uh, we all went off to a youth conference in New Frontiers called New Day every year um, and I was heading up ministry team there um, and Julian was speaking there one year and so we met in the kind of green room or the tent as it was actually <laughs> um, and yeah that's where we met and it it took a few years for us to get together after that, but that's where we first met. And um, yeah, he says he noticed me. I'm not so sure, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's how the friendship began anyway. So you've mentioned New Frontiers a few mm-hmm. times, and I know you've told me before that you were involved in different movements of churches. Yes, that's But just right. to zone in on that just briefly, um, New Frontiers is traditionally known as a complementarian movement, yes. um, which means that while viewed as equal that actually women and men are different and complement each other and therefore their roles are different and how that looks in practice has evolved in recent years within yes. different churches which I know um, but for you what was your experience of being in, in the New Frontiers movement then? You know, I'm so grateful for New Frontiers and all that it put in me and uh, my time spent in New Frontiers churches. My experience was largely really, really wonderful. Um, The church that we went to in Surrey, um, my pastor there, Mark Landreth-Smith, an incredible man, and he just um, really took me and my sisters uh, to wherever he was going. I remember doing assemblies with him. We were in our mid-teens. He was so kind to kind of recognize, I don't know, a level of leadership potential maybe one day, and just really mentored us and nurtured us in that, and I'm so grateful for that. So kind of growing up in the church in Surrey, I I had no um, sense that, men and women were being treated any differently. Um, I'm not sure what their theological convictions exactly were, but I know from my experience at the time, everything felt open and I felt very loved and honored and um, seen as someone who Mark wanted to input in and invest in, which I was so grateful for. Um, And then when I was at university, I went to a few different churches and different movements. Um, But my experience in Emmanuel in Greenwich, again, was one where I was allowed lots of freedom to exercise, lots of gifts. Um, Stu and Livy Gibbs, who lead that church, were just um, had lots of favor on me. And so I was able to do leadership training with New Frontiers and got opportunities to help lead at New Day and speak at different seminars in New Day. And so my experience within New Frontiers has largely been one of freedom and open doors. Now, I know that that's not the case for everybody, um, but I found that when God is leading, he opens doors that sometimes people are surprised that have been opened to you. I remember having conversations at New Day where some people would ask me, how how did you get to lead this team? Or how did you get to speak at the seminar? I thought that that's not open. And Maybe it's not open across the board, but certainly God was kind in opening doors and in giving me people who were full of favor towards me in giving me opportunities. Have there been some challenging moments? Well, of course, no church movement is perfect anyway. So 
everyone in any church is going to have moments of challenge, whether it's about the gender debate or anything else. And so I, I really am aware of that. I don't want to downplay that there were challenges. Of course, there were. There were moments where I really felt like I was excluded or I was unseen simply because of my gender. There were prayer meetings when I uh, remember the guys being prayed for and everyone ignoring me because they didn't just didn't see me, I guess, because I was a woman in the room. Uh, lots of moments where I felt fairly vulnerable because I was one of a handful of women in a room full of 40, 50 guys. And it just made me feel slightly nervous, slightly like I stuck out like a sore thumb. So of course there were challenging moments, but by and large, my experience was really wonderful, uh, full of kindness, full of favor, and full of the goodness of God. And so I I'm really grateful for New Frontiers. Do I agree with all of their theology? No. Do I think that they've probably not got it right on the men-women stuff? Yeah, I don't think they're getting it right. But I think they're a wonderful church movement, and I think they're impacting lots of cities in remarkable ways. And I'm so grateful to God for putting me in New Frontiers context. I'm all the richer for it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Great. So right the way through what you said about your childhood and your teenage years and what happened in university, by and large, it sounds like you didn't really think about the, the subject of gender because you are you just grew up thinking men and women were equal and that they could both lead because that's what you'd seen your parents and your grandparents do um, and and then you were given opportunities you said that their pastor kind of picked up that mm -hmm. you had leadership potential and you got interested in apologetics and did courses yeah and yet gender theology didn't seem to be something that was particularly pinpointed in your heart so when did that start to become an issue that you yeah. were um, interested in? So I remember the first time I realized that there were some Christians who didn't see men and women in exactly the same way it was probably when I was in my late teens or early 20s. Um, and I had a conversation at church, as none of the churches that I've just mentioned, but another wonderful church that I belong to. And um, I was told in that moment that uh, my belief that I'm free as a woman to do anything is actually disobedience. And there's an element of rebellion to that. And me believing that God has gifted me to stand on platforms to preach to both men and women is actually against what the Bible teaches. And that was the first time someone had spoken to that to me. Um, and I just couldn't believe it, to be honest, because I'd had so many encounters with God all through growing up in my childhood, in my teen years, where he'd spoken so specifically, um, both personally to me and through prophetic voices about what he made me for, that all involved leading and preaching and pastoring. Um, some incredibly specific words. And so when someone was saying to me, no, this is all against the Bible, I was thinking this this doesn't make sense because the God I've encountered is different to what you're making him sound like now. And uh, I remember the conversation going on me saying, but, but I have a teaching gift. That's, that's something that people have seen in me again and again and again. Even the church leaders at the time had seen that in me. And I was told, yes, but 
that's like saying that everything that's in you must be God-given. Uh, that's simply not true. Sin isn't God-given. And this kind of strange moment of being told that the teaching gift in me might have been given to me to teach me a lesson, to see if I could submit and relinquish that gift and see it as a test from God. And again, to be honest, that kind of description of the heart of God, that he would do that, that he treats his children that way, that he gives them good things in order to see if they're kind of submitted enough to relinquish them uh, I just couldn't get my head around that he was always much kinder to me in my experience than what was being described in that moment now uh, I won't pretend that that one description is perfect as a representation of all complementarian theology clearly it's not um but that was the first time where I kind of encountered an argument that, that showed me, oh, wait, there's people who don't simply believe that men and women are capable to do all things as they're gifted in Christ. Um, and so for the few years after that, I was very aware of the debate. I, I was aware that God was kind enough to keep me in places where I was being trained up, where I was being mentored but also aware that there was this debate going on around me and sometimes conversations happening with me that felt uncomfortable and felt very sad. And it was probably when I was in my mid-twenties where I had this kind of moment with God where I was like, "We, I've got to deal with this. I've got to settle this issue because I keep coming up against conversations that make me, um, well, question whether I'm rebellious or whether I'm actually gifted. And um, and so I said to God, you know, I, I, I don't want to live in rebellion. If this is you, if you're telling me that uh, I'm not to do what I thought I was made for, that I'm not made for church leadership, that I'm not made to preach to both men and women, that my gifts are only to be used in very specific contexts, um, that, then I want to follow that. I, I think it was part of the radical upbringing that I had, this kind of, well, if you're asking me to do it, I'll do it. But I need to be clear that you're asking me to do it. Um, and that's when I realized I needed to start doing some study. And it wasn't enough just to hear from different people and kind of cobble together a theology on this. It was far too important for that, both for my destiny and also for the destiny of those who I would lead subsequently to that. And so I spent a good few years doing some study. And in that time, there were high and low moments because I would have interactions with people that would make me feel really encouraged in the study and then some conversations which would make me feel somewhat even rebellious to be reading books that hadn't been recommended and, you know, all that kind of um, challenge as debate goes on. And I remember one um, low moment where... It wasn't because of the study that it made me feel that way, but because of a conversation where I was journaling and just, um, I remember writing down really clearly, God, why do you hate women? Why did you let Paul hate women? And it, it really was an emotional response from a conversation, but it felt very real to me in that moment, the pain of what does it look like for me? Because I love God and I believe he's real and there's no way I'm backing away from him. But what does it look like for him to maybe be more mean than I thought for him to be? And what does it look like for him to say, just because I want 50% of my body to have less authority than the other 50%? I, I was really struggling with the emotional reality of that. And then kept doing study 
and um, and really came to a point of going, okay, I'm just going to relinquish all control here, let the study go where it goes. But I was aware from my own emotional sanity that I needed to come to a place where there was a full stop on that debate. And then whichever way I went, I would obey, but I just needed to settle the debate. And thankfully, God was kind enough to lead me to some incredibly helpful resources and to speak to me really as I was reading the Bible, uh, open my eyes to some of the things that are there in scripture, but sometimes are not easily found. And so uh, I came to a point of settling the debate for me. And then I thought that was it. I was like, (laughs) okay, done. Now I'm going to ignore the debate and do what I think he's called me to do. You're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that sponsors this show. If you'd like a free sample copy, just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Lots more still to come. Claire Musters is talking to Katia Adams on the show today. Hear the rest of their conversation right after this. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. 2020 has been dubbed the year of evangelism. Church leaders are predicting an unprecedented amount of missional activity is going to take place. In the latest issue, we report exactly how you can get involved. Plus, we interview the missionary working in the most dangerous nation on earth, and futurist Mal Fletcher predicts what the church might look like in the year 2040. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile. This is the show where we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith and testimony. On the show today, we've got Katia Adams as our guest. She's in conversation with Claire Musters talking about her new book about men and women in the church. Let's listen in to the rest of their conversation. I know that you've said that actually this was not a book that you wanted to write and actually it took quite a long time for God to persuade (laughs) you to write it. So you can tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I think I was probably uh, late 20s, early 30s where God started saying to me, I want you to write on gender roles. Um, And I just got a few very strange prophetic words at the time for me. They didn't make much sense, but around writing on this subject of equality. And I batted all of those away. I just thought, no, not doing it. I kept saying to God, get a man to do it. Or or there are lots of great books already out there. Why do I have to get involved in the debate? Um, As I'd researched and studied for myself, I'd come across lots of people who'd got their own fingers burnt by getting involved in this conversation. And I just, I had no desire to get involved. I just thought, why can't I just do what you've called me to do over here in relative safety? And um, and model something, you know, me and Julian will model something together. Surely that's enough. But I felt God constantly stirring this thing up in me. I've told you to write. And uh, eventually Julian started saying to me, he's he's asking you to be obedient to what he's saying. And I had all these reasons for why I'm not the right person to write anyway. And Julian was saying, well, that's irrelevant. He's asking you to be faithful to what he's said. Uh, It's not up to you about what the results will be or any of those things or whether you think you're qualified. Um, But it it took a good few years for me to come to a place where um, I would agree to what God said. And really the um, instigator for that was uh, a non-Christian book that I was reading. 
So I was probably about 32 or 33 and I was reading this book called Half the Sky. And it's a profound book. I would recommend it to everyone to read. It's um, written by a few journalists from the States and they chart how women are the most oppressed people on the planet today. And um, it's just a powerful book. You, you would think because of the harrowing nature of some of the details that they write that it would be paralyzing to read. But uh, they've pitched it so beautifully that it actually mobilizes you. By the end of it, you're thinking, what can I do? I must do something. And they actually list a few things that you can do to get involved in seeing women uh, freed from oppression. Um, but as I was reading the book, for me, I felt God speak to me again and say, I keep telling you, lend your voice to this conversation. And what Christians say is powerful for what happens in the world. We believe that in, in so many ways, not just about gender, but that the church is powerful, that our voice is powerful to impact culture. And so God was saying to me, I've been telling you for a while. And he kind of showed me that his invitation was a huge privilege. And up until that point, I'd been seeing it as a big inconvenience as something that would get me in trouble and I really didn't want to get into trouble. And he showed me, no, this is, this is not an inconvenience. It's a privilege. You don't want to do it. I'll get someone else to do it. But it is a privilege for you to lend your voice to this conversation. Will you accept the privilege? And at that point, I mean, I couldn't say no anymore. And that's when I started writing the book. Mm, great. So I just, I want to quote a couple of things. Sure. From the bit where, where, even on the, on the cover, Pete Gregg from the 24 seven, prayer movement says it's hard to imagine a theme that's more timely for the global church today nor a message more necessary and in your intro you yourself say you feel every decade that the church continues to debate this issue causes suffering in the world and it actually feels like the gender debate has been around for a, a long time yes. and it's, it's good to be reminded of the, the awful statistics about women still being oppressed so yes. much around the world because it feels like people bang on and on about this issue and actually in churches we seem to go round and round in circles and it actually causes division. So could you unpack what you mean by that statement that actually as we continue to debate this we're actually causing more suffering? Sure. Well, I think the church has the privilege of leading in conversations in society, that God has given us voices that are powerful in the church and we're put on the planet to impact, to shape, to influence, to govern. That's what the mandate was on Adam and Eve, to rule and subdue. And I believe that's the mandate that still exists over the church, that we would stand up and influence and impact. Um, and one of the areas that we can do that is gender roles. Um, and I can see that as we're within the church, confused about what God is saying, arguing within ourselves about whether men and women have equal uh, voices and equal authority, we often say, oh no, we're all equal in value, but um, probably not equal in authority or shouldn't have equal opportunities. Well. As we keep on in this debate and this conversation, uh, the world, th there's a vacuum created in the world for gender roles where there should be a clear, strong voice from the church 
uh, speaking about biblical equality, which I believe is what the Bible teaches. Rather, because there's this muffled, confused sound rather coming from the church, there's this vacuum where our influence should be shaping the world. There's nothing from us really in any intelligible way. And so the world is filling that with its own voice. And that's a problem because they don't have the Spirit of God in them and they don't have the wisdom of reading the Bible to understand the plan of God. And so you get oppression filling some of that vacuum. You get militant feminism filling some of that vacuum. And listen, there's lots of things in feminism that I understand and would adhere to, particularly in terms of if we're saying men and women were created equal, uh, with equal right to flourish, equal right to use the gifts God has put in them. I absolutely agree. But there's a militant arm in feminism where it's women's rights at all costs, where um, it doesn't matter what God says or um, any other other people's rights. It's women's experiences, everything. And that's simply not kingdom theology. Um, and so I think there's a problem when the church is silent or confused on an issue because the impact that we should be having is one that we're not having. And that vacuum creates all sorts of problems because it creates this context where the world must come up with its own opinions. And that's simply not what we were created for. The church was created to shape culture. Mm. So why would you... Um you would say that actually it's crucial for men and also for women to truly understand what they were made for. Um, so could you unpack that a bit? You talk about our destinies, that it's crucial for men and women and women and men to all understand what they were created for in order to be kingdom people. Absolutely. Um, you know, we see at the beginning of Genesis, God creating Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them in the image of God. So we're both needed to reflect the fullness of the Trinity in how God wanted us to. Um, and then God speaks to male and female and gives them a mandate together. And they're given this mandate together to be fruitful, to multiply, um, to rule and subdue. Um, and it's a mandate that requires both of them to be fully functioning in order for the mandate to be fulfilled. You know, Adam wouldn't have been able to be fruitful and multiply all on his own. He needed Eve. She was a crucial element in the mandate fulfillment. And the same goes for Eve. She wouldn't have been able to be fruitful or multiply or rule and subdue in the way God intended without her counterpart because it was a two-man woman mandate. They were both essential to that. The problem for the church is when we speak to only one gender as if the half of the mandate was only given to them. This ruling mandate, we often focus on men as if that was a that was a mandate only given to Adam. The rest Eve could get on with, but the ruling was specifically for Adam. Well, that's contrary to the account in Genesis, first of all. But second of all, the problem with seeing that is that what we do is we discount the crucial 50% that are needed in order for that mandate to be fully fulfilled. And this is why I think this book and books like it, it's not a women's issue book or a women's ministry book, but rather it's essential for men and women to understand how crucial we both are in authority, in rulership, because until we recognize our perfect counterpart in men and women, um, the full destiny, the full mandate will not be fulfilled because it requires both elements together. Um, 
And so that's why I think it's crucial for women to understand how full of authority men are because we women need the men in our lives in order to fulfill the mandate of God on the earth today. And it's crucial for men to recognize how full of authority to rule even, to lead women are alongside them because it's only when the sons and daughters of God rise up together that the kingdom of God will cover the earth Mm -hmm. because the mandate requires both men and women. So what would you say back to people who might push back on that and say, well, actually leadership must be male because Jesus chose 12 male disciples. Yeah, it's a fantastic point to raise, but it really has a crucial problem right at its root. Jesus did choose 12 men. He also chose 12 Jews. And so as soon as we start looking at the 12 people Jesus chose as his disciples as proof of who Jesus thinks is worthy of leadership in the church, we get into big problems because that would mean that Jews are the ones who should be leaders in the church and Gentiles have no part in leadership. Well, lots of church leaders I know are not Messianic Jews are Gentiles. So does that mean they're in rebellion to the plan of God? Well, I don't think so. But then I'm not claiming that who Jesus chose as disciples are proof of who he thinks are appropriate leaders in the church. I think who Jesus chose as disciples is who was appropriate in the context of his day. It was a prophetic sign, first of all, of the new Israel. So that imagery wouldn't quite work with 12 women or 12 Gentiles because he needed 12 Jewish males in order to represent the 12 tribes in in a beautiful imagery that would make sense to those who were watching him in his day. Also, when Jesus chose disciples, he was beginning his rabbinic ministry. That's what rabbis did. They chose disciples. Well, rabbis in the day didn't choose Gentiles or women to be disciples. That was not a recognizable uh, form of rabbinic ministry. So it wasn't that Jesus was being shy to be controversial. Far from it, he was controversial all the way through, but that he recognized that to start a conversation or to join a conversation, you need to be recognizable in what you're doing. And so he chose 12 Jewish men to start his rabbinic ministry so people would understand this is the rabbi and his disciples. That would make sense for those who were watching him. Uh, But then he turned the conversation inside out regularly by having the most offensive interactions with women imaginable. Um, So he, he managed to have the gender roles conversation all over the place, just not in his 12 disciples. Mm. I th- one of the things that I found really interesting, a point that you make in your book, is that actually we tend to view his life through Pauline theology rather than the other way around. Yes. Why do you think that is? I think we see the epistles, particularly those written by Paul, as intellectual theology, as where we can really get the meat of what God thinks, what God wants to teach us. Um, and then we look at Jesus' life and we... Um, almost see him as the incredible picture of the love of God. We we reduce him to somewhat of a kind of a 60s hippie, you know, saying love everybody. And he's maybe not so clever, but he's he is clever enough to speak in parables. Uh, but he's not trying to teach us meaty theology. He's just wanting to express the love of God. And we reduce who Jesus is to someone who was intellectually inferior to Paul, as if the Gospels aren't intended to teach us theology. They're just to show us the flesh and blood Jesus, what he did in everyday life. But none of that 
which he did was meant to be taken as theology, not meant to be taken as informing what we believe God thinks about things, which is clearly, when I put it in these terms, it seems silly, but that is often the lens we read things through. So, you know, we see something in Jesus' life that doesn't necessarily marry up with what Paul said, and then we go, well, clearly, Paul's theology is where we really need to be gleaning from because Jesus wasn't intending for us to take this as theology. Really? Was he not? Was he too careless to realize that or too stupid to realize that what he was doing would inform people about what God thought about things? Um, You know, he repeatedly had interactions with women that would blow apart any religious lens or any other lens in his world. He repeatedly did that. Was he too careless or stupid to realize that he kept having interactions with women that were offensive? Well, I don't believe he was either of those things. I believe Jesus was the incredibly intelligent, intentional son of God, addressing the issue of gender roles by addressing women in ways that his culture thought incredibly offensive. So, you know, we take the example of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John 4. It's a problem because she's a Samaritan and Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. It's a problem because she's a woman and Jewish men did not speak to women in public, especially if they weren't part of their own family. And so here's Jesus on his own with this woman, very intentional. He sent off his disciples. He sees her coming. He does the outrageous thing of starting to speak to her and asking her for a drink, which is unbelievable because he's putting himself in a, uh, in a place where he would be receiving help from her. And then what he doesn't do is have an incredibly patronizing conversation with her that would kind of show her the love of God, but not much else because she's a woman, but rather enters into what is incredibly meaty theology with this woman. And she raises some of the differences between them. She's obviously aware this is not normal. What you're doing is not okay. And Jesus completely ignores it. And rather than kind of reduce the level of conversation, ramps it up by revealing himself to be the Messiah. I mean, it's insane. The conversation is insane. And sometimes we're so over familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And because we don't understand how misogynistic the culture of the ancient world was, we kind of tell ourselves that Jesus, while he was being really kind, wasn't being radical. That's simply nonsense. Jesus was being so radical in that moment. And what I love is at the end of that interaction, unlike lots of his other interactions, where people would come to a revelation of who Jesus was, he would often say to them, don't tell anybody. He would often make them be quiet or advise them to be quiet. He doesn't do that to the woman. She's come into this incredible revelation and he releases her and actually sends her, go get your husband. The whole point is he is empowering her as a woman to spread the message of who Jesus is and what he's done in a way that we don't really see him doing with anyone else except the disciples. And so It's powerful. I like to think of it in the way of before Jesus sends out the 12 or the 72, in fact, he sends out one Samaritan woman. It doesn't get much more radical than that. And he does it again and again. That's not a one-off circumstance where you can go, oh, well, maybe that was just an exception. He does it repeatedly, interacting with women in such radical ways that I can't come to any other conclusion other than God thinks women are worthy to be sent out by the Son of God to spread his message. Mm. 
Great. <laughs> um, but when we have gender role debates, it's yes. not normally Jesus that is looked at. Yes. It is normally and the Pauline theology that we yes. just discussed. So passages such as 1 Corinthians 11, 14, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, yes. Ephesians 5, etc. I don't want to get in-depth conversation <laughs> on those right now. In the next actually, five minutes. <laughs> um, they are not crystal clear. They're not easy to understand. Why do you think the Bible is, doesn't make it really obvious mm -hmm. and give us those obvious answers, on the, particularly on this issue, but others as well? I think, well, here's my suspicion. I think Jesus is trying to teach his body to walk in love more than we love walking in correct theology. I think there's an element that we, as the, as the people of God, um, so focus on correct theology, don't get me wrong, that's a good thing. It's important to make sure that our theology is um, as sound as we can possibly have it. But we can get so focused on theology at the expense of loving one another. And last I checked, Jesus didn't say the world would know we're his disciples by our correct theology or our correct interpretation of the Bible, but rather by our love for one another. And so I think there's this fundamental value of learning how to walk in love despite disagreement. And, and how else would he teach us to do that than to leave some things open to debate so that we would have disagreements, so that we would have to dig deeper to find what he's leading us into, so that we would have to um, explore the heart of God together as communities. And so, you know, I can't claim that this is the only answer, but I certainly would say that this is um, one thing that I can really see in the heart of God, that he's loving to teach us as his children to love walking in love more than we love walking and being right. And so even in writing the book, I was really aware of God speaking to me through it. Make sure that you're how you voice this is full of love and honor for those who would disagree. Because I think we've lost the fight before we've begun if our tone is lacks love and honor. And I don't claim to have got that perfectly by any means. Uh, but I wholeheartedly apologize if I failed from that ideal because I think it brings joy to the heart of the father when he sees his children, despite theological disagreement, learning to love one another, honor one another, celebrate one another, not draw lines where it's us and them, but recognize that we're one body and it's important, unity is important. So yeah, that's my suspicion on that. And if you just take a quick look at our culture today, that's actually what the example that the world is crying out for, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That we wouldn't be butchering each other over theology. That mm. that surely isn't reflective of who God is. Mm. You also pose quite a few interesting questions when we're looking at uh, the writings of Paul, such as what does his teaching look like in practice mm. today? And what's springing up in the wake of what we teach on yes. gender roles? And if the fruit of our teaching does not match the fruit that Paul saw in his day, then it's time for us to go back and, and reevaluate. So how do we measure that? What would you suggest people do? Well, you know, when we look at Paul's life and the interactions he's having, the, the women that are springing up around him, um, you've got Junior, you've got an apostle. And really many in the complementarian camp have now, I, I know this has been a debate that has raged on and on, but finally there's 
agreement, even within most complementarians, Julia was indeed a woman and she was indeed an apostle. Um, there's some question now because the goalposts keep moving on this, unfortunately, but there's some question now, what does it mean to be an apostle? Maybe an apostle wasn't as uh, full of authority as we've read in scripture. Well, there's lots of reasons why not to go down that route. But anyway, you know, you've got this woman who's an apostle who's named Junia. You've got Priscilla who we've, we see in the book of Acts exercises teaching gift over a man who is later seen as an apostle, Apollos. Um, you've got more women commended for acts of ministry in Romans 16 by Paul than men are in Romans 16. He, he speaks to more men in that chapter, but in fact, it's the women he commends more for ministry. And when we say commending for ministry, it's not... Um, kids ministry or women's ministry, not that those things are small or insignificant, but actually the ministry he's talking about is public ministry that would be famous across provinces. That's why he's mentioning these people in Romans 16. The, the people he's writing to would know these names as famous. That, that's gonna make us think, what roles of public ministry were these women doing that they would be famous across provinces? Um, the words that he, the ministry words that he uses to describe these women is ministry words that he uses to describe his ministry, Timothy's ministry, Apollos' ministry. He's using words that are the same or correlate to some of the most impacting men in ministry in the early church. And so that, that's significant fruit right there. That's the women he's raising up. He's not afraid of strong women. He's not afraid of public ministry women. He's not concerned that they're in public ministry. In fact, he honors that. Um, and so here's the thing for us to weigh up. Whatever theolo theological position you have, here's the thing to start thinking. How many women are springing up around me who are teachers and are apostles? Because if they're not, then there's a problem with our theology. Because if the fruit of our ministry isn't reflected, uh, reflective of the fruit that Paul's ministry had, then perhaps our understanding of the theological teaching that Paul brought is needs tweaking, needs readdressing, uh, because it's only the fruit of it which shows what the tree is. And so it's important we can say, all the way through that our theology is correct, let's eat the fruit of that tree and let's see. And we can say all the way through, we believe that women and men are equal. Let's eat the fruit of that tree and see what the tree is. And so that's what I would say. We can debate all we like, but the reality is Paul's life in practice raised up incredibly strong and equivalent women. It, this was no patronizing of the women. This was no, oh, you can have a go, but just remember that I let you do this as the man. I, I'm the covering. No, that's not how he spoke. These were women who he addressed as equals, um, equals in ministry, not just in value. And that's important. So if churches are trying to reflect that equality, you actually talk about a need for intentional pursuit of women that actually is not enough just to give women permission. So what more do you think churches should be doing? You know, there's a cost to intentionality, and I recognize that. Um, so really, initially, we need to ask of ourselves, are we willing to pay that cost, or are we wanting to put that cost on another generation? Because intentionality looks like 
male leaders not only raising up and mentoring men because that would seem more natural to them or they would feel more comfortable with that, uh, but intentionally raising up women, looking at their congregations, uh, trying to see through the lens of gift, not through gender, and intentionally pursuing those people. Uh, we've got to recognize that women have been disadvantaged in the church, that's fair to say, uh, across the board, really, um, or in lots of pockets. And um, that will mean that their level of confidence is going to be generally lower than their male counterparts. That doesn't mean they don't have gift. That doesn't mean they're not called. That just means that they need encouragement and pursuit. That means that they need um, resilient leaders who will keep pursuing them. You know, I've been in contexts where a woman has been given a Mother's Day preach, um, hasn't done a very good job, and then there's been conversation around that. Well, that's why women shouldn't preach. First of all, any seasoned preacher will tell you Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas Day, these are difficult preachers. E even for the most seasoned preacher, uh, high, high Sundays like that are difficult to pitch correctly. So first of all, please, if you're trying to train your women, don't give them Mother's Day. That's a difficult preach to get right, even for someone who's been preaching for decades. That's not a great preach to give someone just because she's a woman. That, that's not helpful. But second of all, the reality is for those who are inexperienced, they might stand up one time, two times, and preach a message that isn't great. That's not proof that they're not called to do it. That's proof that they need more intentional mentoring. And I'm not a big fan of putting people up on Sundays and when they're not ready and kind of practicing on your church congregation lots of times. So I'm not saying put people up on your platform who are not ready or gifted. What I am saying is find places to mentor them. That was certainly my experience. People being willing to mentor me, to train me up, to um, invest in me by putting me into theological courses so that I could learn things, so that I could practice preaching in small group setting. Um, that's costly because it requires our time and our energy. And I know lots of church leaders are saying, I have so much to get on with already. And now you're saying to me, I need to think through this whole other huge thing. It's costly. I'm not denying that. But I think the tragedy would be for our generation to say, okay, this isn't right, but we don't have the energy to deal with it. That leaves it to our sons and daughters to pick up the mess. And so... I, for one, am saying let's pick up the cost on ourselves so that future generations will walk in the good of men and women walking alongside each other. And you, uh, talking of future generations, you have two That's young right. children now, don't do. you? So how does that work out, the whole uh, preferring one another <laughs> and championing one another um, in your marriage and in your family life? Because obviously we said at the beginning that you and Julian co-directors of Frequency, you both travel a lot, you both speak extensively. How do you marry your calling outside of uh, your home with family life? Because listeners um, and readers might be thinking, well, this woman seems to do everything. How does she manage it? Because it sounds like her husband's doing everything as well. What does it look like for you in your marriage and your family life? Sure. Well, when we read Ephesians 5, I, uh, the central verse in Ephesians 5 when it talks about marriage relationship is actually Ephesians 5.21 that talks about mutual submission. The whole community, husbands, wives, fathers, children, master slaves, they're all invited into this mutual submission where you reciprocate submission. No one group is permanently in charge. There's this reciprocal action where we get to um, submit to one another in different moments. Um, 
And there's this beautiful term that describes the Trinity dancing around each other. And so Julian and I take both of these values really seriously in how we do our marriage. We think a lot about mutual submission, what it looks like in different moments to submit. And we tend to focus on submitting to the one who has gift or greater faith or greater revelation in an area. So very simply, my husband Julian is incredible in prophetic ministry. He's a prophet. And so I, um, you know, if we're invited to speak at a prophetic conference, we tend to say Julian's probably the gift that will be better suited to that conference. And so we encourage those who are inviting us to use him more in that context. And I happily submit to him uh, in that context. That is who he is. That is his gift. And whilst I can prophesy, he is the one who is stronger in that area. And it's my joy and my privilege privilege to submit to him as he leads us as a family in that as he leads ministry moments in that and I happily take care of the kids or whatever I can to serve him in that moment and then there are other moments where I'm more gifted in an area where I I tend to be um, the one who's seen um, more as a crazy risk taker now Julian is a man of faith definitely but I am a crazy I would admit that and so there are moments where we recognize as a family this isn't uh, this goes even beyond a faith moment to a crazy moment and in those moments Julian very happily submits to me he's not thinking I'm the I'm the leader I've got to do all things he's recognizing no there's a gift in my wife that is more applicable in this moment and so we like to reflect what we see in the trinity where the father son and spirit seem to dance around one another they prefer one another there's different moments where the father Father is in the spotlight and then there's Jesus and then there's the spirit and they all seem to try to direct the spotlight to the other and we try to reflect that in our marriage where we dance around one another is this your gift moment or my gift moment is this a moment where um, there's greater revelation that you're carrying you run with this is this a moment where your strength is needed please you run with this and then the other facilitates our family our organization, all of that stuff in order for the other to run in that moment. And so, um, you know, the last few months, Julian has been amazing in releasing me to do lots around the book. And that's costly for him. That means he's the one who's on duty with the kids much more. That means that he's got to slow down his pace of ministry in order for me to up my pace in what I'm doing at the moment. And so, are we perfect in this by no means but this is the ideal that we're pursuing and where it when it works it makes life so much fun because we're finding the grace gift that God has put in each of us coming out and flourishing and blossoming in beautiful ways and learning how to celebrate one another and not need feel the need to compete against one another but recognizing I facilitate Julian's destiny and he facilitates mine and our children are a beautiful outworking of both of those things and get to enter into the adventure of both of those. Um, and so it's a wonderful adventure. I wouldn't have it any other way. That sounds great and, and, <laughs> and a great way to finish as well. You've given us a lot to think about. So thank you, thank you Katia. And do check out her new book, Equal. Yes, Thanks. thank you so much. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the publication that sponsors this show. We are giving away a free copy of the magazine to you. We'll deliver it direct to your door. 
why not head to our website, type your address in, let us know where you are, and we will send you a free print copy of the latest issue of the magazine. It's all about evangelism this month, but if you're someone who cowers in fear, even at that very word, don't worry, we've got some great down-to-earth content from our columnists writing in a very real way about sharing our faith and what that looks like in 2020. So check it out, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample is the link you need. My thanks to Claire Musters and to Katia Adams for that fascinating conversation today. There's plenty more where that came from. If you want to check out the profile as a podcast, we've got well over 100 interviews with all sorts of different Christians from all over the world covering a host of different subjects. So check out the profile podcast. Simply search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcast from or go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. We'll be back same time, same place with another great interview for you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next time.